Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Welcome back to Euros Hartley's Finding the Front, where we will crack on with part B of this captivating chat with Bill Beeman, the Managing Director of ASX Listed Develop and former Managing Director and Executive Chair of Northern Star. Let's keep going. Billy, with the, the acquisitions, were most of them open pit and then you put your stamp of underground on them? No, look, we, we predominantly focused on underground and the reason we did that, right. uh, other than the super pit and we'll come to that later on, but our skill set and DNA was underground mining and underground geology and understanding how to maximise both those areas like productivity, lowering costs, increasing margins and the other part geology which is I, I used to love I find I'm, I'm more of a geologist these days as a mining engineer I love it yes because that's where you truly get the value creation and Fodius drummed that into me early on is the difference you can make on market cap with a drill bit versus operational is there's a big delta there to, to easy get and um, so understanding geology and, and extending mine lives you create immense value for shareholders and for the operators and the stakeholders so for me, understanding underground geology and, uh, and the underground mining gave us the opportunity to buy assets cheaply because people did not know, people struggle with underground mine lives because it's just you can't drive a drill rig around the surface no. and, and drill it out. You have to drill from underground. So you've got technical challenges yes. and uh, you can only get so much in mine life. So we were able to go to vendors and buy these assets really cheaply, a lot of them not for sale. Like We just tapped on the door and said, look, can we look at it and give you an offer? And they would. A lot of these companies couldn't understand underground mine lives, and that's, that's where we could create value. Open pit, it's like a glass of water. You know how much water is in it. You, you know the size of it. It's a shell. It's your cost of capital, um, your discount rate. Everyone can do an MPV on open pit. Right, right. Whereas underground, you don't know how much water is in the underground. Um, and the, hence where that's the IP of, of what, you know, myself, everyone in Northern Star, that's their IP, is understanding underground geology and underground mining. And hence, you know, like, you know, every asset we bought added to your mine life. And, uh, you know, Jundee had a less than, a, you know, had basically spank bang on a two-year reserve mine life. And that was in 2014 and it's still, you know, I think it's got a 10, 15-year reserve on it now and you know, this is 2022. Oh, just fascinating. You moved out of Australia and looked at Pogo in Alaska. So the journey continued when you looked at uh, those acquisitions. And uh, am I right on saying that that sort of six-month time frame those acquisitions cost you around 200 million in total. Yeah, we bought Pogo in Alaska for 260 US, so about 350 Aussie, and it's probably got a valuation now in Northern Star of probably two and a half, three bill Aussie. So not a, not a bad return on capital. <laughs> so, but the the ones you bought prior to Pogo was around 200. Then you oh, spent, yes. and then you spend another th- say 350 on Pogo, yeah, correct? Yes, and now your your gold production has just gone through the roof. Yeah, I think when we bought Pogo, I think we were doing around about 600,000 ounces per annum. And Pogo was a really interesting story because we'd done a lot of work on our training and building our teams up because our view was you can't grow unless you build teams and have that capacity. And, and we, I saw that. The lessons I learned in Barminko, we grew that business one year or two years 100% and we didn't have the people behind it, yep. like the infrastructure. You know, I had to put that in there really quickly and Peter ran a really lean shop, but 
like it's sort of that's where the you know, the year I employed twenty senior people. But uh, you know, I learned the lessons. Unless you put the people and infrastructure in, you can't actually make that step change as a business. And so we did a lot, a lot of work behind the scenes in building those teams up to be able to like take the business offshore. And, and you can't treat that lightly. You're going the other side of the world. Yeah, different time zones, different cultures, all that sort of stuff. But when the quality of asset is that attractive to do it, we could enact that. But not many companies could do what we did, is we literally put 60 or 70 expats, high-performing talent that we pulled out of our Australian operations and took over there. And the vast majority of, you know, that's still there. I think there's still 60 or 70 expats there today. So, you know, three years later, but we could afford to do that because of what we did domestically. And, and there was, again, there was a plan around that. Yes. We had aspirations to go offshore and, and we articulated that to all our shareholders. So there was no surprises. You know, look, when we did the deal, God, I think we, we, raised, we raised money to do that transaction and I think that was, I think it was something like seven or eight times oversubscribed or something. It was gobsmacking for the level of interest and, you know, when we come out of a trading, I think we went up 20% on the deal and there's not many deals where you go up as, a, as the acquirer. So um, it was a great well, result. A very, a very good reflection on the management. Yeah, it was. It was, it was an amazing team effort on that one. And, and look, that asset is, you know, in the market it's, you know, these things take time to turn around and, and probably the only thing we didn't, didn't do, we probably should have said it was going to take us three years, not 18 months. That was probably the lesson I learned on that, be a bit more conservative. But I think people see in the coming six months the quality of that asset, I reckon, will really shine. It's just taken work to get it into a position and we had to retrofit a mine. Yep. That's the other thing in Northern Star. It's a, people probably don't realise is we would love to get a fresh ore body and start from scratch. We had to retrofit every workforce, every you know, operation and to put our business stamp and our operating model on it. So it'd be nice to start, you know, get kissed on the, uh, kissed on the bum and get a new ore body that we find. You know, well, you know, I'm not there now, but they're fine and, and apply those skill sets and, uh, and start from scratch and show the industry really what it can do. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's, that's still my aspiration now is to get hold of a great ore body and, uh, and start from scratch and, and really show industry what can be done from an underground mine. Gosh, gosh. So, Billy, what could be perceived externally as the crowning glory then comes along. And in January 2020, Northern Star acquires 50% of the Kalgoorlie Super Pit, previously held by Newmont Gold Corp, for $1.17 billion, joining the Rally Finlayson-led Saracen Mineral Holdings as the owners of the West Australian site. And that is, that is a really big move at that point. It's a big move on a number of levels, but not only the money that was spent, $1.17 billion, but also it puts Northern Starter, to, elevates it to a globally significant level. But then there's the other side, the sentimental side, and the perception from the outside of what Northern Star and Saracen have achieved, and that is putting this amazing asset back in 100% Australian ownership. It must have been a very significant moment for you personally professionally but also it just would have really been so rewarding it's sort of like a culminating event could you just give us a bit of an insight into that transaction and how that happened and logically to be alongside Raul in that position too would have been quite both WA School of Mines guys rally from the station you're from Esperance and here you are just give us a bit of an insight yeah, look, it's when you're, you know, I guess you're running a resource company, you, um, there's certain assets you want. Right. Um, and it all comes back to we're always driven by geology in, in Northern Star. Like 
you know, a lot of people didn't realise this, but even I think when I left, we, we had like 200 geos in the company. We only had like 110 mining engineers. So like people think we we're heavily dominated by mining engineers, but we had, you know, basically two to one geologists. And that's the key, you know, you, you've got to have the quality ore body. And obviously, you know, KCGM is the third largest gold endowment ore body in the history of the earth. And it's you know, a fantastic operation. It's, it's gobsmacking what, how much gold's come out of that and still will do for the next 70 or 80 years. So, you know, you want to own assets like that. Yep. They're the assets you want. And, you know, look, we had a great suite of assets, but mines do run out. They're smaller scale. That, that had the scale, the geology, everything going for it, cost structure, all that. So I'd been trying to buy that since 2016. Is that um, right? Yep. So it, it first come up for sale, the Barrick half come up in 2016. And we got really, really close, like extremely close on that. Went to Toronto, you know, put in a deal and all that. Anyway, Barrick ended up, the deal fell over with the other parties and Barrick kept the asset. And it's interesting because looking back then, I'm glad that happened because I, I know how much script I was going to have to issue. Yes. And I, I look back at that script and, and that would be in today's terms about or probably about two and a half billion dollar Aussie of value of script I would have had to issue back then. Goodness me. So massive, you know, like yep. when you look at it. And to its credit, like, you know, they had to hold on to it and then they had a pit slip eighteen months later in May twenty eighteen. And uh, you know, obviously that was the catalyst for I guess for both parties to sell um that asset because, you know, the value obviously plummeted with that and production dropped down and you know, there's a cost to rectify that in time and, and then just it's not meaningful for their portfolios. But I tried hard from 2016 and I kept my finance live for probably another 18 months on that with the banks, like kept going back yes. you know, so that we could bank it. And, and I think we put in another three or four offers during that time, had multiple meetings with Barrick trying to get it. So look, and the, they kept it, you know, and it was flying along. I think it was doing equivalent of 750, 760,000 ounces, 100% all the pit slip. And that happened and obviously the world sort of changed a bit from then. And so 2019, you know, I think the Barrick and uh, Rangold merger had happened. So, you know, they were looking at their asset base going, okay, what do we get rid of? And, uh, and they weren't the operator. Barrick weren't the operator. Newmont were the operator at the Super Pit. So, you know, they, they run a sale process again in 2019 and, you know, Newmont were the operator and they were selling, you know, sort of, I guess, a passive 50%. But still, we were very keen on that asset and, you know, like it was all the Aussies and I know who was in that room, I won't say, but obviously yep. Saracen were because they got it. You know, look, we went hard on that and, um, you know, but it wasn't an easy sell to my board. In fact, I had to walk them back off the cliff about three times to put an offer in at the end because it was, you know, we, we like controlling our own destiny. Yes. We, we don't like to be a, we like to be the operator of a joint venture and because joint ventures are bloody horrible to be, let's be frank, they're not the easiest things to do. They start out good, um, but they'll deteriorate over time. And as Warren Buffett says, never get into a joint venture with anyone that's got more time or more money than you. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, Newmont had both. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so look, so we went hard on that. We did miss out, but, you know, Saracen popped up and, and grabbed it. And to their credit, you know, Rel did a lot of work. It wasn't just the process. He's a um, very canny person and take his smile at, uh, at, your, at your peril because he's a, a very um, calculated and, and sophisticated and extreme professional behind his facade, um, loving to bits. But he is a great operator and very entrepreneurial and, and he did a lot of work behind the scenes even before that got to that sale process to establish relationships and did trips and, and put in the hard yards, which not many people do. Again, I see at these conferences I go to as myself and my team, we do the extra yards to establish those relationships in business. And, 
we see other CEOs going to the gym halfway through a conference or they're walking out in the front of the conference in their buddy um, golfing gear, going golfing for half a day. You know, that's not that's not me. It's not our team. And that's not Ralph putting those extra hards. So, yeah, he, he did get, he got looked after and, and, and fought hard and bloody grabbed that opportunity. And I'll never forget because, uh, you know, like we, we weren't there and um, weren't successful. And I was over Sydney when it was getting announced and, um, and I was doing a, a sort of a roadshow and institutional conference. And, and obviously, you know, we had a lot of common shareholders and it got announced and, you know, they're sounding you. All, yes. the, all the instos are sounding you. And I was just saying, no, fantastic, fantastic opportunity for Saris. And it was picture perfect for them. They really nailed it. Yep. Um, I think Ralph would have must have, when it got announced, would have been going, oh, shit, what have I done? Which you have those moments when you buy an asset and, and sort of bet the farm on. Yep. But to his credit, he, he did. And I saw him in Sydney when he came off the plane after not sleeping for about 40 hours and I got him to come and have a beer and, and I just said, mate, well done. You know, it was a cracking, cracking opportunity and yeah, I was jealous. It was you know, a great asset and he managed to leverage it. So yeah, so look, I, I was giving him a plug around town and he still owes me for that. <laughs> I still haven't got a present for that one, real. But, um, but yeah, so look, fair to say though, is as soon as they got it, I went to my board straight away and said, guys, this has become exponentially more valuable with Saracen on the other side. Yes. We need to know. We don't need to own the other half. We have to own the other half. And we've done full due diligence, full banking. We, we, we went into a binding off in Toronto, so we we're fully financed. Yep. And so in less than a week, I had my board, yep, yep, we have to crack at this. And it was such an easy decision. The board was excellent. Whereas before, I had to walk them off the cliff. Whereas this, they went, no, completely get the logic. This makes sense. And we aren't open pit operators, Tim. You know, like the first time, you know, the only time I've worked in an open pit is literally going going down the ramp to go through the funnel into an underground. Yes. Um, yep. I haven't worked in open pits until until the super pit. So not a bad one to have on my resume, by the way. No. But um, <laughs> good place to start. But with Saracen and their DNA and their open pit background, I just knew that they would make a success with Newmont on that asset and bring those disciplines, which are well and truly played out now. So. As soon as they're on the other side, the board just went, yep, you have to, you have to get this. So I literally cold called the CEO of Newmont, Tom Palmer. And I don't know whether I'm persuasive or not, but he said no. And then 15 minutes later, he was like, well, I think we need to investigate this. And, and from that phone call to when we announced in the ASX, it was 13 days. Is that right? Yep. So it wasn't put out to tender or out no. in the sale process? No, no. No, it was just, I don't know, it was just, you know, look, just and I, 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 I've no, I know Tom, Tom lives four doors down from my house at the moment and um, right. he's a great guy and obviously he was based in, in the Asia pack for, for years in the same office and really, really good operator, great operator and great background. And, you know, again, relationships. Yes. You know, the relationships you spend catching up with people and nurturing for years and you can pick the phone up and have those conversations and work out a shared response or a shared opportunity and, and again, it didn't fit into their profile. It was like less than three percent of their global production, and you know, and there were some hard decisions to be made on that pit, which are, them, which have been yep. yeah at that stage, which need to be made on cutting back the slip and persevering with that. And again, coming back to this ESG component now that's so prevalent in mining industry, of anything I could ever reference back to a great ESG outcome of an asset was Barrick and Newmont selling those fifty percent shares to local companies and putting it back in local hands that understood it, lived and breathed it, grew up in those areas, knew the people, knew the operations. Uh, it couldn't be a better example of a great outcome yep. from an ESG perspective. And, and obviously, you know, we'll probably talk a bit later at what that transpired into. But, um, you know, having Saracen there as, in their open pit background, it was just amazing. Our, our first JV meeting was really early on when we got the keys and you could just see that the skill set we bought 
respectively to the table was amazing and and we knew that this was going to you know be amazing for that asset and and it's transpiring now it'll still take years for it to come out but you know it was so easy to put the teams together we literally were just we were acting like one company yes from the day we were in that meeting and that's what just pricked in my brain that I've got to do something about that so those meetings clearly did go well because it was within a year almost that Northern Star and Saracen merged and it was touted as a merger of equals in essence a 16 billion dollar transaction which is enormous enormous money yeah 16 billion dollar transaction for the two organizations to come together and uh, fall under the the one roof of northern star with yourself as executive chairman and raul as managing director that must have been a really great moment oh look it was yeah it was it's it's amazing and it was also putting kalgoorlie under one ownership and if you look at some of these great regions and great geological districts, you know, probably they're owned by one operator and, and that's why it should be too. And, and I think you're going to see more of this in the future. And, you know, I think largely, you know, I've been talking to some large funds in the last three or four months that are talking about this. And I mean, the biggest funds in the world are saying, look, certain companies need to own these assets in, in, the, in the BC and the Golden Triangle because, you know, they've got the balance sheet and the operatorship. So you're going to see more of this in the mining community, in my view. But, but coming back, yeah, it's like when we're doing these JV meetings, it was really evident that we got on, like we knew each other really well. You know, like I said, you know, Simon Jessup was the COO of, of bloody um, Saracen and you know, we lived together for five years. So yep. I, knew, I knew the good, bad and the, and the ugly of Simon. Um, but we had a really good respect. We'd all worked and you know, a lot of us had worked together or knocked around together and we, we knew how everyone was. The, the DNA and the cultures, you know, no two cultures are the same, but we were very similar. But the skill set that we brought together on, on those assets and the other asset, um, Paul, was just too hard to ignore. Yes. And, and everyone was getting on well. And, and you just knew it needed to be under one banner because there were hard decisions coming up in that joint venture and, and challenging things and, and capital to be spent and I guess the management time to look at that and the return as well. Like we were a bigger company than Saracen. So for us, Casey Gem was great, but we also had great other great assets that that required our management time and capital as well. So we were starting to think, how do we trade that off? And, and so that's not good for the overall asset if we're thinking, oh, hang on, we only need to put this much in here or Saracen want to put more in or whatever. So yep. you could see these things that were all great to start with, but eventually they would fray and, and you know, fester and, and you know, like I say, JV start out all right, but eventually end up deteriorating. So I just saw that opportunity of the potential of putting it together and and, you know, look, it was, it was one of those ones, as, and I probably didn't say, but, you know, like I probably hung around in Northern Star two years longer than what I wanted to. Again, yep. I had a, a view of where I wanted to go in my career and what I wanted to do, but the allure of getting that super pit, half that super pit was, I had to hang around for that. Like literally that kept me around. And then obviously as soon as we put, you know, the 50%, you know, it was really evident I needed to hang around to put the companies together. So yes. I, I did hang around two years longer and we were doing a lot of succession planning behind the scenes with the board and, and senior management on that. So, yeah, it was just too good an opportunity to put two great companies together and great assets and great toys. Well, the Saracen family joining the Northern Star family created a a new top 10 global gold producer, consolidated the famous Golden Mile under a single owner for the first time in its 125-year history. And that in itself was pretty impressive for both of you. So that merger and that bringing together, clearly it's great to get that insight and that background, but it's pretty powerful stuff. Oh, look, it was, and look, that's the pinnacle of my career is putting the two together and, and empowering the team to go on for the next bloody umpteen years and, and just seeing the quality of the assets they had to come together. Like the KCGM, 
that'll be an underground for the next 60, 70 years. It's an amazing system. It's still got 20 plus years as an open pit, but it'll be one of the large, it will be probably the largest underground mine in the future of the state. It's a massive system. So you could see that. It's going to take years for that to come out. You know, people got to put information out, drill it and all that, but you know yep. it's there. The historical workings won't lie. Massive track record of, of an operation before it become a pit. So, you know, where you find gold is next to gold and there's plenty of gold there. And, and so the Kalgoorlie, it was one of those things where you, I lived in Kel for eight years as yes. well. So I'm very passionate about Kel. I, I still get back a lot. Love the Kel race round, sort of taking out the Kel cutter twice in the last two years. <laughs> yeah. Coming back this year and I'm going to take it out again, hopefully. Might have to buy all 10 horses this time though. But look, it's very passionate about Kel. You know, my partner was born in Kel. So it's, I love the town and want to see it prosper and, and putting it all under one ownership. You know the capital's going to get spent and you know they're going to take that operation to a level that will see the next three, four, five generations of Kalgoorlie people out. So yeah, look, that's Pretty special. Me, Oh, it was, mate. It was, yeah. it was amazing. It was amazing to be involved as part of that team to put that together. And, you know, that's when I knew my journey was over, mate. Yes. I, I knew that, you know, what am I, I'm not going to sit around for the next 20 years and watch KCGM flourish and the other assets. I, it's time to move on. You know, it's sometimes we, you know, it's a bit like sport. You want to, it's like Ash Barty Day. How's that? Yeah. Retires at 25. Number one in the world. <laughs> Unbelievable. Like, you know, obviously there's a story behind that that will come out in due course, but yep. like, I don't know what it is, but. Going out the top's pretty cool. Yes. And I'm not saying it's the top of Northern Star, but for me it was the peak that I could see for me in Northern Star. So, Billy, just on that, you decided to – I mean, that is a massive decision, having to step down from something that you did grow from scratch and, and taking into account what you've described prior to recapitalising the company and, and, you know, it's a pretty tough times, okay? So we put that on the table and then you've come to the point where you've decided, right, it is time for me to depart a company now that's got a market cap of over $16 billion or thereabouts, and you start looking for another executive chairman to fill your role. And that's where you came across Michael Cheney to step up or agree to accept the position, which is a massive compliment to you and Northern Star and the merged entity. Could you just give us a bit of an insight there? Yeah, look, it was an interesting process like to recruit, you know, like when I was departing one July and so we started recruiting for a non-exec chair and which has changed because it's been exec chair. So that's, that's a, obviously a different role being non-exec. Yes. So we started that, that journey and, and it was fair to say it's, it's a difficult journey to find a non-exec chair based in Perth at that sort of level for an ASX 50 company. So we had a recruiter and really didn't come out with the goods and, and I was getting a bit frustrated with that going, well, we need the right person. This is big organisation, really, you know, Two cultures coming together. We, we need a superstar to come on board. And to be honest, I actually went and saw Chris Ellison and I just asked him the question. I said, mate, who's around? Like I'm scratching my head like, to try and find a person that, that could fit in with our culture and take it on the next journey for a period of time and, and get everything bettered in. You know? you know, two boards only just come together. Yes. You know, like, and, and, um, and there were people that were leaving on the board that needed to be replaced and obviously two management teams coming into one. So and he said, look, give Michael Cheney a call. And like I'd shaken his hand once before, I didn't even know. And um, I literally just, he gave me his number, I texted him, cold called him and he agreed to catch up. And I just took him through, and he'd done his research, you know, like guys at that level, they do their research. And again, I do the same on stuff. And when I walked in, he'd read the annual reports and knew a lot. And I was like quite blown away actually. And we just had a great chat and um, I just outlined what we did and how we built it, outlined the team, which was really important for him. And who they're going and where they could go to on the next level they're going to step up to. And, and he was very, you know, could see the challenge in that. So, like, we had an hour and a half 
you know, meeting and, you know, he's a pretty busy guy, so, you know, had to get cut off and he goes... On the minute. Yeah, but he turned around and he said, oh, look, I'd like to further this conversation. And so then we met at the Shaw House a couple of weeks later and I think we had lunch. And I didn't realise he was bloody... He had the geology background. And he did start in hard rock and then petroleum and then the rest is history and an amazing, you know, I guess, career as an executive and, and non-exec. But um, he was definitely interested in the geology of, of our assets, in particular the Golden Mile, which you, you have to be if you're a geologist. Yes. It's amazing. You know, that really pushed a button for him. and Resonated um, with him. Yeah, yep. and it's not easy to convince someone to come on board when you are departing. It's not as I was going to step off and be a non-exec director and, you know, and help the transition. I, I was, you know, he starts the day I leave. Yes. And to his credit, you know, he got really engaged, done his work and joined the board and a fantastic addition for the company and really that steady hand that it needs in the transitioning because Northern Star is well and truly transitioning from two small companies that built up really quickly in their large companies and but are now transi- transitioning into a major. Yes. That's not easy. And I wasn't the person to take that in. I have always vowed I never wanted to work for a major. That's, I've been vocal about that for 25 years and it's just not my character. It's not my personality. I, I can't do that. And whereas, you know, Michael's run the largest organisations in the country and what a bloody champion to come in and, and do that. So, oh, it's quite something. Yeah, yeah it was. Yeah. It was, it was it, that was probably my best recruit. So well, one of my best recruits. Well, it'd be interesting to see who could top that one for a non-exec chair role. Quite outstanding. Yeah, no, it's good. And it's going through a journey. It's transitioning to yeah. major. And, and it's like, it's, it's hard when you put two teams together that, the teams that Ral had and the teams that I had were all people that, that didn't want to work for your BHPs and Rios and your, your Newmonts and Barracks. They were the large organisations. The two teams we put together were working for us because that's, that, that was their DNA. So it, it's, it's a hard point now going into a major. It's a, you know, they're the type of people that didn't sign up for that. So it's, it's a bit of a transitional now happening. Quality management's coming in. They're paying really good money. So it's, it is a transition the business is going through. And, but you know, they've got A-grade management and board in there. Billy, that's been a really, really important part of your career the whole time, some 14 years with Northern Star, and you are at a point now where you need a challenge, clearly, or you've decided you need a challenge, and this is where we move to the next chapter. And I think you can look back on Northern Star and and reflect with some amazing memories. Hats off. Quite an amazing story. it was a brilliant journey. (laughs) It just is a great story. Let's talk about VentureX, which is now called Develop. ASX-listed base metal developer and specialist underground mining services provider. What attracted you to VentureX? What was the seed and what, why did you get itchy about, I want to get over there, I want to, I want to be there? There's a bit of a backstory on VentureX up till early last year. Is I did, when I was a shelf company looking for assets back in 2009 and 2010, the assets that VentureX had or got, I did full due diligence on both those assets back then, and I come second on them. Um, one I couldn't afford, the other one I, I, saw the, I saw the bad side of corporate world on that. But yeah, like that's when I had nothing. I was trying to buy those assets and, um, and come second and on both of them. But, uh, so I liked those. I did full due diligence on those assets. I thought they had potential yes. uh, in the copper and zinc type elements. Fast forward, you know, Northern Star, I always had this vision Northern Star would, yeah, earlier on I did, I had this vision that I wanted to take it into any great mining company is diversified. You know, your BHP, Rio, Anglo-American, all that, West Mining back then, they were diversified mining house, Glencore's the same. And so I thought if you want to create a multi-generation, intergenerational business in, in mining resources, it's got to be diversified and not just one commodity. And so back in, um, I think, 
2012, I took a position in Venturex and, and I did because the guy I mentioned earlier on, Michael Maroney, that gave me the opportunity to buy Paulson's when he was an investment banker. Yes. He was the MD of Venturex. Right, right. And he used to be my boss when I ran a copper mine in Queensland years ago. And uh, so small world. Yep, so yep, like, and now yep. Mike's the chief geological officer in Northern Star. Um, <laughs> okay. So like Mike was the MD and, and I, I thought, and they had a really, you know, these were good copper assets. And I thought the easiest way as a gold company to transition to a mining house, you have to, you can't just do it overnight. Investors would have a coronary crap themselves. So, you know, but getting copper exposures is a natural for a gold company to, at a point like Barrick and Newmont have got big gold uh, copper portfolios. You know, about you know, 25, 30% of their revenue comes from copper. So it's a natural step to then, and then once you're in your copper and years later you can go into nickel and yeah, X, Y, Z. So I took a, an $8 million, $8.5 million placement in Venturex back then. And again, small will, Tony Keenan was the chairman of Venturex and then was, it went on to be the chairman of Saracen. So, you know, small worlds. But yeah, so I, I took a position because I thought it was cheap, it was small, but eventually Northern Star could mop it up at a point in due course and, and that's its entry into copper and no one can blink and we go on and do other things. But we grew so quick. Our shareholder base predominantly come specialist gold funds. Right. And then we got, you know, picked up by the you know, Van Eyck ETF, which you know, there's certain rules about, about gold exposure and, you, you know, you need certain much of revenue. So all of a sudden, you know, we just kept growing and being a gold company is, you know, it just, it fell by the way. So we couldn't be a diversified miner that what's and what we were. In years to come, I'm, I'm sure Northern Star will get copper exposure in due course. But it just didn't happen. So, look, it was an investment that we supported for a little bit, but then just it was irrelevant right. and so small in the scheme of it. it was, and quite on, often, quite, you know, often those small investments, they're distraction. You've got to put one of your execs on the board and, and all that sort of stuff and yep. you've got to keep supporting them. Yep. And it's hard work. But, you know, it's a bit like Kerry Amanis owned a 25% of Northern Star. He supported it. Thank God he did. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't, wouldn't have gone and done what we'd done. But, yeah, so we, we didn't support the last three raises of that company and, and it was yeah it was dying on the vine, if you know what I mean, even though it had a great asset. So I've always liked that asset and I always thought life after Northern Star, I would be involved in that one way. I just thought it, it's going to be a mine. Yep. The main project up there, solves, it will be a mine. And so I always had aspirations to be involved in that. Yeah, so look, uh, you know, that opportunity came up last year and, you know, probably about three or four months earlier than I was hoping, but, you know, in, in business and op- in life, you've got to take opportunities when they're around. And uh, there was an opportunity to throw money in and, and recap that. So, you know, so we, you know, mid last year, I, I put a package together, I think total of about 58 mil cash injection into the business and, and of that 37, 38 me. And uh, so, yeah, like a big chunk of cash went in last year and a lot of a lot of old people that colleagues and people that helped me business uh, build my career and my business, you know, yes. service providers that I've known for umpteen years and I got their own businesses. Everyone, you know, participated in that in that recap and that capital raise. So, so the register is very very tight. The yes. top, top one hundred, I, I literally would invite to my fiftieth coming up in three years' time. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but look, that was that was a you know a good consortium to put together. So, I just really liked the asset. And predominantly, and you gave a little bit of intro, but we, you know, our aspiration is to own commodities, you know, that help decarbonise the world and transition the world's energy needs. I was going to say that, so that copper, decarbonisation. Yeah, it's a yep. huge, and we should talk about that thematic. But like for me, that's the principal driver of the business. I am doing mining services for a number of different reasons. Um, I love that business. I've you know, spent half my career as a mining contractor. It's just so complimentary. Like no one is doing the business model of mine ownership and mining services in an underground basis globally. The only person I can reference is doing it. The same model is Chris Ellison and Minres. 
but he's open pit and yes. he's, he's you know commodity agnostic. He's an iron ore and lithium and yada yada yada. But um, I'm only playing in in the commodities of that clean transition energy uh, metals of the future. So that's the only person um, that's doing the same business model as me, and I love what he's created. It's gobsmacking what he's done, and I don't think people externally really appreciate what he what he's creating there and still is to create yes and um and hence why he, he took out the northern star stake when i announced the recap he's, he's now my second biggest shareholder behind itself at 16 17 yeah i saw that i saw that so, this strategy of i i love your terminology in your presentation around future facing metals it really is you know that copper um and, and then i you're alluding to ultimately your battery style minerals as well yeah, look, the thematic is massive. Like, we all know it. And it's it's funny to sit here now because, like, I, I did want to transition out of gold for a number of different reasons. And I don't really want to go there. But you can see the thematic coming. And I saw this, I saw what was happening from an ESG perspective on coal, oil, and gas. You can see that we, we have to change. And we're going to need really good miners to be able to do this for the next 30 years. We have to decarbonize the world. We have to make that commitment. We've got to get young kids into mining. And get them trained up because you know we're going to need these commodities. Yes, and you know we've been on fossil fuels, we've been hooked on it for 150 years, and if you ask people three, four, five months ago on the street, yeah, they would have thought we could transition out of fossil fuels in three or four years. And I saw this a couple of years ago, going, "You've got to be kidding yourself! Yeah, like, that is just ludicrous." And you're seeing it all play out now. Look at the price of thermal coal. Yep. Far out. Look at oil and gas. Gas yep. prices are five times higher in Europe. You know, look at what we're paying in the petrol bowser as of today. Yes. It's going to take us 30 years to transition, you know, get our addiction off fossil fuels. 30 years. And then you start looking at how the hell are we going to supply the commodities to do that? We need the copper, the nickel, the zinc, the silver, the lithium, the rare earths. Like, that's the building blocks, the cobalts. And then... Everyone's made commitments. So you look at all the big businesses around the world, all the, all the governments, even our own government did. Everyone's committed to these targets and these timelines and what they're going to reduce emissions by in net zero 2050. Like everyone's committed. CapEx has signed off. Governments have signed off on it. The gun's off. The board's yep. been fired. Yep. The race is on. How the hell are we going to supply the commodities to do that? I can tell you now, Volkswagen get the supply chain, Toyota get it. Every other car manufacturer still thinks you can go down, down the street to Audi and Costco and get your commodities. I was in London three weeks ago talking to the global metals and mining banker of a large investment bank. Right. They've been approached by Ford uh, in America. to They got commissioned only about a month ago. They went to them and said, we need to get 220,000 tonne of class one nickel per annum starting 2025 for our EV range in Ford. And like I'm sitting there going, My Australia goodness. does 115,000 tonne as a country. Where is it going to come from? Like, this is, I can't see the thematic any clearer than what I saw the gold industry back in 210. Yes. Way clearer than that. I just went to the major conference in Miami three weeks ago, the BMO conference. That's the one you have to go to. I sat there and watched all the global CEOs present, gobsmacking to watch, like BHP, all these guys. BHP, 15-minute presentation by Henry, 15 minutes of questions. He didn't even mention the iron ore division. Didn't mention it. Don't worry about the 22 billion US of, of earnings last yes, calendar yes. year. Didn't mention it. There was one line saying WAIO in a little slide. If you aren't from WA, you know, it's, you know what it stands for. But yep, yep. if you were an investor from, from New York, you wouldn't have a clue. Would have gone straight over. Vale, you know, iron ore producer with a couple of nickel mines in Sudbury, glossed over their iron ore division. Big thematic that I saw over there was there was a couple of key thematics from two years ago. 
ESG was one to two slides of BHP or Rio or Anafagasto or Glencore. It's half their presentation two years later, as of three weeks ago. And then the other half, they're talking about future-facing metals and how they get exposure to it. And I'm just sitting there walking away going, the metals I'm in and the thematic I'm playing out, holy hell, it's just been cemented in stone. And all the global investors are hitting, you know, how do you get exposure to nickel, Bill? I'm like, oh, shit, it's really hard. It is really hard. Like, you probably have to go to in, in Indo and Philippines to get it. And good luck, because that's not easy. If you want to take that risk, you know, everyone was talking about it. All the majors, even, even Newmont Gold Company, spent half their presentation on the half of their operations yes. talking about their copper assets. Like, it, the world's changing really, really quickly. Investors are screaming out to get exposure, but... How do you buy BHP and Rio for copper exposure? It's so dominated by iron, iron ore links. Yeah. So it, it's, it was amazing. The other element was there was not a global CEO that was prepared to spend five or 10 billion US building a mega project in copper or all those commodities. So there's no new supply coming on, not finding the stuff. Mines are getting deeper, grades are d- diminishing. So, so copper's becoming oh, scarcer. Mate, it is absolutely unbelievable. Copper's yep. cheap at the moment. And you can see where this demand's kicking in in 2025 onwards. It's out there. Robert Friedland, the Pie Piper, you've got to take it with a grain of salt. Yes. Anyone listening to this, try and get your hands on the BMO lunchtime keynote presentation he gave on copper. It's, it's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Everything I've been saying you know, from a small-scale person, yep. you know, internally and externally, of vision of where, where that's going. If you can get your hands on his preso, it is amazing to, to see, and he's dead right. He hits the high notes everywhere. This is a train crash coming from people. I don't, and like, let's just take some of these commodities like cobalt. Seventy percent comes out of the DRC. Yes, is Mercedes or BMW ultimately going to be able to take that product and put it in their in their car, or is someone going to be able to take dirty pig iron nickel in their batteries out of China? Take one expose on four corners and it's all over. So this ESG element and where the supply comes, the supply chain now is something I've been banging on for years. Everyone's seeing it unfold now, and the you know like the next thing that's going to come out in this next three or four weeks. How are you going to take a product out of China that's got Russian inputs? Like everyone's saying, you know, Russia's you know, giving all their exports into China. It's great, but are you going to accept something that's been built on those inputs out of those raw commodities? It's getting complex. It's getting really complex, mate. It's a great yeah. point. So for me, my goal is to own assets in tier one locations. Because I'm underground, I have a natural advantage on scope one and scope two emissions. We have a huge, you know, we're a huge advantage over open pit mining. And, mate, open pit mines are getting really hard to permit globally now. There was a country last week that just came out and said, we're not going to permit an open pit mine. So the underground thematic is huge. I've been banging on about it for years. Tier one locations producing the greenest copper and nickel and, and zinc cons and, and lithium underground and things like that. That's the way of the future. They're the assets I've already got and going to continue to acquire because you'll get a premium for that product. Everyone's going to want it in their home, going to want it in their car, and we will get a premium for that, especially coming out of places like Australia. It's a fascinating area, this ESG and the low environmental footprint that you're alluding to with underground versus open pit. And it, and it really does change the way that mines will operate. Do you think it's going to go to that level? Look, it, absolutely. It already is. It's radically changing. Well, yeah, you alluded to that, but you, you see it, you'll see it on the ground here in, in Australia. Oh, look, I take the gold industry. So the gold industry has been around for 150 years. So it's a mature industry compared to iron ore and it's compared to copper. Like the copper mines really have only been around the last 50, 60 years, if you look at you know, the, the Zambian copper belt and, uh, and Peru and Chile and all that. So the gold industry has always has been the bellwether of this. If you look at the gold mines, and I've been saying this for a long time, is their transition underground. Because we've, mined, we've found everything that outcrops in the world. Yep. Like we have. Like it doesn't matter what commodity you talk about. We've found it. 
but we're finding stuff at depth. So that's an underground. But you look at the copper mines of South America, which is 38% of the global production comes out of Chile and Peru. They're all transitioning underground in the next 10, 20 years. Like those big, open, they're already now, they're block caves, panel caves. The gold industry has already transitioned. Like Australia 20 years ago, 75% of our gold production was open pit and 25% underground. That's the other way now. Yep. It's 75% underground, 25%. Because we've mined everything out in the big surface, it's going underground. You know, the lowest cost gold mine off scale in the world is Cadia. It's an underground block cave at Newcrestone. It is the lowest cost gold mine in the, in the world uh, of, you know, plus 500,000 ounces per annum. It's a massive system. Underground can be really cheap on a large scale uh, operation. Like their mining costs, I think, is $4.80 a tonne. And there's no strip ratio because it's a block cave. Their processing cost, I think, is about 6 or $7. Gosh. So, like, you know, that's, that's lowering your iron ore mines. Yep, yep. So when you get those large scale ore bodies, you can block cave, panel cave. It's really, really cheap. So that is the future. The future is those large scale undergrounds. And you're going to need really, really good underground personnel and operators. Expertise yep. to do that. Yep. And there's not enough of that on the ground. And that, that skill set really is in the hands of the Australian underground mining industry. Which is where your positioning develop in 100%. terms of your, your skill set in the underground. Oh, look, absolutely. It's, you know, the, the two world's best mining contractors, in my view, apart from develop in the near future, is um, Burncut and Barminko. They are the best. That's why global CEOs, you know, people that run Barrick, Newmont, other companies have taken those expertise offshore the last decade. Like my old colleague Stu Tonkin set up West Africa for Mark Bristow and Rangold with Barminko. Then he's taken Barminko into North America. Like it's, this is happening really, really quickly and I've been warning industry about this, is um, that expertise. Those, those contractors make much bigger margins offshore. And the thing is now they don't have to just go into Africa. Like they're getting taken into North America now. Yeah, yeah. Um, at great rates of knots and, and all through Europe as well and other areas. So that's making a big deficit back here domestically and, and so we do need to, as an industry, we've got to put a lot of time and effort and train and bring more people. A rally through. around it. Yep. yep. So look, that's, you know, that's why I want to get back into mining service as well. I, I, I think, you know, we have a part to play to train the next generation underground miners and not lose that DNA that, that's been so strong from the Western mining days. Like all the mining contractors come out of Western mining. Burncup, Barmingo, National Mine Management, that's now part of, you know, McMahon's and GBF that come out of there as well. And, you know, so it's, it's been a really, really good honeypot and I think, we as the next generation entrepreneurial people have that, we have that duty to create the next generation of underground miners. Keep the pipeline well. full. Yeah. Billy, I'm conscious of time. I, I really look at what you've been able to do with Develop. Currently has a market cap of in excess of 500 million. Counts yourself, as you say, and Minres as your major shareholders. Going forward, you can see, is the main driver going to be your sulfur springs, your copper and zinc style deposits? I know you've just made an acquisition in New South Wales. And that's Woodlawn? Yep. Yep. And so you're going, to, are you going to adopt a similar Northern Star approach, your business model? Yeah, replicate that in terms of the way you operate, develop, and look at opportunities for unloved assets and things like that? Yeah, look, there's absolutely. So I've definitely um, cut and paste a lot out of my old shop that we, we built, but I've taken it to another level in a number of different areas. So. Yep. And it's, you learn lessons along the way in your career, and that's one thing I've been fortunate. I'm one of those people, I always keep optimising. And, and when you see a great idea from someone else or a great person, grab them in the business and drop the lower performing or drop the bad habits away. So I've always been doing that. So setting something up with a blank canvas like what I'm doing at the moment is amazing because you can, you can learn all those lessons and set it up from scratch from day one and, and not have those issues in years three, four, five. So I'm accumulating assets in copper and zinc in particular, like 
Sulphur Springs will be a mine. Um, we'll develop, start developing that next year. Woodlawn's an amazing asset. I was over there again last week for a few days. They spent $340 bucks on this asset. Everything's brand new, like the mill, the postfield plant, the offices, the workshop, change rooms. It's gobsmacking what they – I'm literally walking around pulling stickers off and plastic wrappers off stuff. And look, that's our, our fortunate opportunity, and, yeah. and I feel sorry for the previous owners. Um, they were literally about to kick a goal, and the wheel fell in, in, in between their ears, you know, around their ears in 2020 March for a number of different reasons. But I want to accumulate more of those assets. I yes. think you've got this window to do that before people start working it out. Because this thematic, as we've already touched on, it's real. It, we're in a 30-year bull cycle. And like we'll have ups and downs in it, but we're in a 30-year bull cycle. And I don't think people have truly realised that component at the moment. And so, yeah, that I, I want the mining services in there because that helps me build the DNA up. That's what I built Northern Star on, hard-nosed underground contracting yes. operators. So that's coming together really, really quickly. We're tendering on a couple of jobs. Touch wood there. there you know, hopefully we get one or two of them. I don't want to be big in that side, Tim. No. I only want two or three contractors. So I'm contracts. I'm not actually a competitor of Burncut and Barman Co., to be honest. I only want two or three, four or 500 people. I know what size business it is. I think that's the optimum size business where I can give care and attention to the clients, develop my talent, and know everyone in the business. Yes. And get them motivated and, and make sure they, you know, like those underground mining services businesses, the best businesses are the ones that are owned by the, you know, the person that owns the shop runs the shop. Yeah. You know, that's why Barman Co. was. So frigging successful. That's why Burn Cup with Steve Coglin was, you know, so successful. All those private businesses in the mining services space uh, have been massively successful when that person owns a shop, runs a shop, and that's. You know, I, I'm a third of this company fully diluted. Yes, and that's the motto. Just yeah. go forward, ha- keep the relationships, keep it strong. Yeah, and look, I trained half the underground industry up, so like it's fair to say that my phones rang hot <laughs> since I recapped this company when people understood the business model. It's just. It's been chaotic, like people are not an issue for development. You know, I could man up, you know, 1,000, 2,000 people right now. Gosh, it's exciting, Billy. Really exciting. Not to move on from develop quickly, but I do have to just ask you about your other roles as an advisor to Metals Acquisition Corp, which was some other news separate to develop around the acquisition. Well, it's a blank check company formed of focused on green economy metals and mining businesses in high quality stable jurisdictions. Sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, you just that that business metals acquisitions corp just acquired the CSA copper mine from Glencore in New South Wales for one point one billion, and you're an advisor to that. I was just curious as to what what brought that on, and it was quite an interesting acquisition in itself. High grade producing copper mine. So it falls into the thematic we've just touched. Yeah, look, absolutely. It's a, it's a cracking cracking deal, cracking asset for both sides. So. Glencore have done a fantastic job as a custodian of that asset and it will hopefully take it on and carry the great work and, and, and maybe take it to a, a level or two, you know, further up the chain, you know, considering we're going to be, you know, people are going to be boots on ground a, a lot more because of the high level sort of management on one asset. But um, look, a little bit of backstory too that is, I, I've said this a bit of in the last couple of years and, and it was really interesting talking to Chris Allison about this the other day. He, he gets it, I get it. The resource industry in the future is all about people. Like I've always said, it's always about people, but it is all about people in the coming three to five years. And, I don't, you know, we've got tight labour markets and all that, but there's not enough skill set around. Right. And we're going to need these commodities. I can't emphasise it. So it's going to be all about people. And unfortunately, the current landscape of, of like how public listed companies have proxy advisors and stuff like that, it's not accommodating for it. The resource industry does not fit in the box that suits proxy advisors, to be quite frank. 
Right. And I see that as a big challenge. And I, I think institutional shareholders have got to have a look at that because the resource industry doesn't fit it. It's not the box that fit it. It's like commodity prices go up and down. REM can go up and down. You can be a $15 billion company one day. You can be seven, you know, three months later and you're back to 20. You know, look at Woodside going up and down. Yep. It's, it's, yep. You know, like, so it's really hard to how you enumerate your senior management. And when you see that, people only see the five people in the annual report. Everyone else in your organisation is linked to that. People forget that. All your middle management, they're all on the same sort of STIs and LTIs, maybe you know, different ratios. And obviously the salaries are different, but like they're still inter- everyone's connected on the same journey. And I don't think people, proxy advisors, appreciate that. And that was one of my things. I was exec chair in ASX 50. I think I was the only, well, it might be two of us that were in there. Yes. They're very frowned upon, whereas in the States, it's super, you know, it's the norm. Yep. But for some reason here, it's frowned upon. So that wasn't easy. And that sort of wears you down as well. Probably one of the part of the reasons why I left. Yes. It's got sick of that. But the Americans get it. They get about backing people. They get, and, and that's why you've got these blank check companies. You know, yes. They were in 2000 and 2020, I think 60 or 70% of all money raised on the New York Stock Exchange was blank check companies, which were banned here in the 80s. That's the same, same version as, well, the same as what they call a SPAC. Yeah. Special, special Spe- purpose yeah, SPAC. acquisition company. Yeah. Yep. So, like, that is basically just a cash box that people raise on a name and a team yep. that then go and buy a business and, and fend it in there within two years. What I've said is, I said this last year, I think these type of purpose vehicles the ASX has to look at because to me, this will suck talent out. Like Mick McMullen runs it, it's global CEO. He should be running a, a multinational company right now. But he's gone in that because you can put equity in it and it's listed on the New York Stock Exchange, pay structure is different, you get remunerated way different than Australia. And it's all about talent, like you need this talent and resources. So they've also got to be rewarded financially with that. Right. Like, so it's a very different pay structure between here and, and the North American markets, to be quite frank. So that will suck talent. I've said this, you know, this is a real issue moving forward is sucking talent. Like I'm lucky with my business because I'm a major shareholder and Chris has been really supportive of this, is we can throw equity at people. Yes. Other companies can't do that. Like it's not a salary thing, but you know, where people, they do a great job. Everyone wins, shareholders win. Well, they make life-changing amounts. And I saw this in the early journey of Northern Star. We could give equity out in the early, early days and everyone did extremely well from it. Are they still there? Yeah, absolutely. They're still working twice as hard and all that sort of stuff. Very aligned. But, you know, they've paid off their houses. You know, they've got their kids in the private schools around Perth and they've got some money to go on holiday and, and some and they're financially secure. Like, it's getting really hard to do that with the current landscape of these proxy advisors. So talent will go where capital goes. Where there's and, opportunity. And so that's, yep. that was one of the reasons the SPAC was setting that up and you know, like we'll be in three months' time, we'll just be a normal listed mining company on the New York Stock Exchange and, you know, Mick's very good at getting a good package and he'll be remunerated accordingly. And, but it's all self-funding. If the company does well and, you know, share price doubles, well, you know, if he makes 30 or 40 mil, who cares? Yes. All the shareholders have done extremely well, but that's frowned upon back, in, back at home. Yeah, so that's why I got involved with it to help. And I, I like Mickey's on the board of Develop. I did that deliberately. Handpicked the board, which has been fantastic. Yes. and. And uh, yeah, you can, you know, you've got to get these things set early on. So like, that's what I've done. I've set the business up early on, the right structure, right shareholders. They'd understand that and appreciate it because you still got to give a return to shareholder. Yes. We will do everything the best possible ESG, greenest company known to man. But our executives and our senior management people involved will make money as well. Gosh, it's been uh, fascinating. I was looking at one of your presentations, Bill, and I saw that copper prices are up 13 times since 98. Zinc prices are up seven and a half times since 98. Would you hazard a guess as where they're going? Oh, it's a good question. I, copper has to keep going. There's yep. no two ways about it. But the thing is, like markets are only 
day by day or analysts are quarter by quarter, and this is what you get frustrated in, on people, is they just buy and sell and trade too much. But, you know, the demand for these commodities really doesn't kick off till 2025. Yep. If you look at everyone's commitments and targets they've set on where we ultimately got to get to you know, net zero by 2050, but all the commitments in 2030, all that, the real demand kicks in from 2025 onwards. And that's, that's when my operations are going to be all starting to get into production at that timeline. I wouldn't, you know, like, yes, the, the copper price is good now, the zinc price, the nickel price is very good now. But fast forward in three or four years' time, I think it's much higher than where it is now. And that's yeah. when you want to be producing. And, and I can clearly see where that's going to come because I just don't know where the world is going to get these commodities from. Mate, we could talk for a long time. I've just got a couple of questions outside of work. Family, let's talk about your kids quickly. You've got three beautiful kids. Yep. Two of them, and oh, one's definitely overtaken me. He's 14. He's an inch taller than me as of last week. <laughs> yeah. As a 14-year-old, it's amazing. And then my middle daughter is about 5'10", so hopefully she stops growing soon. Uh, the other one's never going to get tall. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> but no, I've they're got, keeping I'm, you busy? Look, they're great. I've got one in year 12, uh, one in year 10, and one in year 9. And I'm just very fortunate. They're, you know, my ex and has done an amazing job with the kids. You know, like it's when you run an ASX 50 company and you build something so quick, you're not present a lot of the time. And, and that's, again, part of the reason I left Northern Star. And, you know, you go through COVID, it makes you reassess life. And, and I come a much better dad Yes, through that. Yes. Much better dad. And as a single parent, I had to. Yep. You know, my kids turned around and said, Dad, we're sick of eating Uber Eats. Yep. And that sort of jolted me. I love cooking, mate. I'm, um, <laughs> I'm actually not too bad at it. Just Good, quite on. Like, <laughs> Good on you. Yeah, I, I, that's what I've been doing the last couple of years. I, I was forced to cook for my kids and, you know, and I, and I actually really enjoy it, you know. I definitely take photos and, and make sure that, you know, they, they recognise it, but um, <laughs> send them to my current partner. But, but yeah, I, I um, yeah, that was a, a real changing. And, and, and my board back in Northern Star were really good. I, you know, being a single parent, you know, like I had to pick the, drop the kids off at school and my daughter's got a licence down in year 12, which is scary. Yeah. But um, back then, a few years, you know, I've been, you know, over four years, um, you know, like I had to pick the kids up, drop them off at school and, and all that sort of shit. So you're forced to change your life and change your work and, you know, you know, I asked the board if I could work one day a fortnight from home because it just wasn't, you know, the time you yep. dropped the kids off and did school lunches and all this sort of shit, you, you weren't in the office for long. So, yeah, no, it's, you know, I've got three great kids and, you know, they're on the journey of life at the moment. And oh, fantastic. It's, it's, it's cool. It's cool to watch them. My, my house is like a halfway house now because, you know, one's going to turn 18 in July and, like, there's always people rocking up and going. And they've all, they've all got their licence down, which is scary. Yeah. <laughs> And um, middle daughter, she's, I used to call it Kate's world. You know, there was nothing but Kate's world, but I reckon she's just popping out the, the, out the side of that now, <laughs> coming to be a 16-year-old. So oh, Good, good. Yeah, mate, no, I, I thoroughly enjoy. And to be honest, the last couple of years have been really good as me as a, as a dad. I just had to get more involved. And again, another reason why I sort of wanted to pull out of ASX 50, because, you know, I, I will say that it's missed a lot, you know, if you know what I mean. Yes, no, that, that work-life balance is pretty hard to juggle. Yeah, and then that's... Part of the reasons of going in this, putting a shitload of me, I think on the 38 I've put in, I put another four or five in the other day on this acquisition. And, and you know, I've done that because I want to be able to work at my own pace. I do work at one pace, but I also want to be able to get that work-life balance right. Everyone coming to join me, I've said the same as well. Yes. You know, they've all got families and young families predominantly. It's like, you've got to get that balance right. Don't do what I did. Work too hard and sort of that cost one relationship. And, and I don't want the next one to do the same. Oh, yeah. No, good advice. The other thing I was going to sort of touch on, Bill, was you're still playing a bit of footy. I know you're a demon uh, AFL Nines player, still running around, bar injury. <laughs> yeah, very big injury right now. You love, you're still loving your sport? 
Oh, look, I yeah, look, I'm I'm one of those white line fever type people. <laughs> Unfortunately, I I just yeah, I'm very competitive. It doesn't matter what it is. If if it's a ball, I'll, I I want to play it. You know, even it's ping pong, I'm bloody aggressive. But yeah, I, I love my sport, love my footy, very passionate about the Eagles. So sorry for those Docker supporters out there, but um, you did have a good win on the weekend, and we're not rebuilding. We just didn't have eight of our starting ten in the lineup <laughs> on s- Sunday. But anyway, we've got a few recruits coming back in. So yeah, look, I, lo- I love, I just love team sport to be honest, Banners. Yeah, yeah. And you know that's why I don't really play individual sports because I've just loved the team environment, yeah. love the the honest locker room and the change room and a bit of fun and you know, be like you know work. You got to enjoy work. That's one thing I've. I'm loving what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm back to enjoying work. You know, you've got to have a bit of fun, a little bit of laughter and enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. And, and, and be around people that are the same. So, you know, when you run, you run a large-scale organisation, that you just it's hard to keep that environment. Yes. So just getting something small. But, um, yeah, so back to sport. No, I love my AFN9, but I broke my bloody knee. I broke my leg in it in November. <laughs> um, literally, it was a real shit kick by Kearnsey that, that twisted me leg and just got hit by a really clumsy fullback. <laughs> And uh, so yeah, I've got uh, I've got about you know eight eighty five mil screws in my knee at the moment, and a big long plate. And literally, I've uh, I've only just started getting back onto doing some exercise. It's been a bloody tough, a tough tedious, gym. tedious journey, yeah, as you know, with your injury at the moment. It's, <laughs> you just got to do the rehab. So look, I don't know if my footy career is over, and hopefully my partner's not listening. But oh, I don't know. If, watch this space. Yeah, watch this space. But I've got to do something. You got to keep you got to keep active in life and. I just love that, you know, competitive nature that sport brings. Oh, it's important. And it's good when you, you know, sort of, you know, play that AFL nines and I know you played as well and played a lot of footy, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people down there that, you know, sort of reminisce that they're still in their 20s and yet they're 40 or 50. And it's, it's, it's still guns. Yeah, it's still guns. Yeah, <laughs> there's some, still some superstars down there, but it's good to be playing alongside them and against them. Billy, just some quick rapid fire questions to wrap up. What do you think is going to go on with interest rates? Are they going to go up fast? Oh, look, they can't. Yeah, I still think interest rates are extremely low. They're here, they're low, to, they're low for the rest, you know, like around the world. Can't, it can't support high interest rates, mate. The, the world will come unstuck with the debt loading. So for me, it could go up 100 basis points, but it, won't, it can't go much more because otherwise, you know, imagine the defaults in the housing in Sydney and Melbourne. So no, I'm, I'm still uh, quite bullish where we've got low interest rates for a long time. Gold price? It's really hard. I, I, you know, you saw with the turmoil of Ukraine and, and potentially World War Three erupting a few weeks ago, and gold really didn't react that well. Mm. It's like and now it's lower. Gold price now is lower than what it was before the Ukraine war. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one for me. I just think gold's got a place, but I don't know. It's it's hard to see where it's going to be in 20 or 30 years. Bitcoin. I'm not a fan. And the reason I say that is, you know, I think Bitcoin's value now is probably in excess of what the gold value is now. Mm. But will there be digital currencies? 100%. And I think this is the biggest risk to the gold industry. There's no way the Federal Reserve or federal banks, central banks around the world are going to let a digital currency happen like Bitcoin without them controlling it. Yes. No friggin' way. I'm, I won't invest in Bitcoin. I'm negative, anti-negative. I think one day you're going to wake up. I ain't going to be there. But there's going to be definitely a digital. And Biden came out last week saying he's reviewing Bitcoin. He's going to look at a digital currency. It's only a matter of time before there is a currency digitally. A f- a formalized one. Yeah, it has to be. We can't. Yep. Yeah, it's getting harder to dig things up and put them in a vault. Yep. Australian dollar. I'm commodity bull. So we have to have a high dollar. And, yes. and it's tracking up now. So yep. if we're getting great iron ore prices and coal prices and gas, it's, there's only one way. It could, it could peg back to 80. How are you seeing WA at the moment as a destination? Look, difficult. And it doesn't matter what sector you're in. It's, it's, you know, I feel really sorry for the hospitality industry right now. And look, I've gone around the world. 
um, last month and then back again Sydney and, and the world is really treating the current situation completely different and I think we've done an amazing job here but it's time to let go and get on with life and, and when you go around the world you work that out real quick. Yes. Um, so yeah, look, I think we're going to look, look back in a couple of years' time and go, how did we – I think there'll be a lot of negatives that come out in a couple of years' time, like the mental health issues, like you know, we're protecting a small portion of the population, but what are we doing to the rest? People not seeing family for two years. I'm, I'm about to see my dad's partner on Friday for two years. Like, that's just sad, right. and she's 77 years of age, lost my dad. Two years ago, yes. Um, you know, this is this is irreparable damage, and the mental health issues for our kids coming through, I think, are extensive. And so, I just think we need to just get on with life. So, yeah, we need to hurry up with that. We've done a great job. Hats off, but like, it's time to move on. And look, the state's booming, but we need people. This is again, we're setting ourselves up like in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, where the bubble pops, and and all of a sudden, yeah, everyone's gone and bought more expensive houses, they bought boats, cars, everything can. We've got artificial inflation with wages and that at the moment. That's, that's unsustainable. Yes. It is unsustainable. And I hate to see what happened back then, but as, you know, we're all around back then as, as you know, sort of middle management. And I don't want to see that happen again, and hopefully it doesn't. But it's not right at the moment, so it's just too artificial. So hopefully we can open borders a bit more and not you know, get more people in here and, and sort of diffuse that a bit. But you know, the supply chain, everything, mate, it's every industry you look, it's just a struggle. Last question. When you look back at what you've achieved over your career, you would have to have had a number of sort of mentors that you've had and influences. If I was to ask you, clearly your father was one. Was there anyone else that you could handpick to say, I know you've mentioned a few throughout our conversation, but one that really stands out that, you know, you, you would say has really taught you something? Oh, look, it would probably be um, Chris Rowe. Chris Rowe was, was like a father figure to me, you know, like, you know, my dad was, you know, my dad and, and, but, you know, Chris really was like a second dad to me and, and was my non-exec chair in Northern Star, you know, chose me when he employed me in 2007 and, and only finished up, you know, probably two, 18 months ago from the board of Northern Star and, you know, pushed him down from non-exec to a non, uh, non-exec chair to non-exec and I went exec chair, but, but um, well, it actually was the board's idea to do that. But Chris was fantastic. And just that old grey experience factor, you know, Chris is 76 now. He was someone that just could keep your feet on the ground. All my mentors I love because they keep your feet on the ground. And he just had a way of doing it and and gave me the, like I, I saw a really good consultant that used to do a lot of work for Apple. And they said about Steve Jobs and, and what the board did was amazing is they created a space for him to operate. Yes. Like that's what they did. Their job was to create a vacuum for him to fill. And, and I feel that Chris did that with myself and my management team. He did the work behind the scenes on that board to be actually create the void for us to, to operate and let us operate. And, uh, and we had the trust respect that went for that. So he was amazing in, in a work sense and a personal sense. He was brilliant. He was like a father figure that, you know, would take the phone call at 11.30, 12 at night when I'm really angry and annoyed and, you know, like just one event. And, um, you know, and at the end he's like, yeah, just sleep on it, Bill, and we'll, I'll call you in the morning. And, you know, you wake up in the morning and, and business, I, I don't hold a grudge on every one of these people. Blow some steam, but uh, but the next day I'm fine. And my dad was the same. But Chris was that that uh, steadying, calming influence, and uh, an absolute gentleman with it. Oh, good on you, Billy. We'll call it there. It's been a fantastic conversation. I've enjoyed every second of it. You've given us such a great insight into your life, where you've come from, what you've achieved, 
and how you've achieved it. The next stage with develop sounds really exciting too, mate. And, you know, all the best with it. We really um, wish you all, all the very best of luck and look forward to catching up again at some stage. So, uh, hey, thanks a lot for coming along. Really appreciate your time. No, thanks. Thanks for listening. Good on you. Cheers. Thanks, Billy. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.